What's up, guys? This is Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Recently on the Winging It podcast, Vince Carter and Annie Finberg sat down with NBA All-Star Kyle Lowry and recording artist for Timmy. This week, 2017 first overall pick Markel Fultz joins the show to talk about living up to expectations and working his way back from injury in the NBA. Make sure to check out Winging It on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sports have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he just got done tossing beers off the balcony. It's Andy Greenwald! At what point in your life, culturally, socially, and economically, mm. what's the first point where you would have been comfortable taking a six-pack of your own oh, purchase and throwing it into a parking lot. Still won't do it. Still won't do it. Me either. It caused me pain. I actually longingly, we're talking about Better Call Saul. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. uh, and Monday night's episode. It's Thursday. Uh, we're talking about Monday's, the third episode of the fifth season of Better Call Saul. I'm joined by Andy Greenwald. We're both wearing t-shirts. Kaya is back from Hawaii. Weirdly not wearing a t-shirt. Uh, Hawaii, the land of t-shirts. Yeah, but we have a lot of great energy going into this podcast. Yeah. And if you're, the answer to your question is I like beer. And I wouldn't just throw beer bottles away. Me too. Yeah. It's exciting to have a six-pack. Yeah. Maybe it's exciting to throw them too. It's a, it's something I've never done. But what a scene. What a great scene in a great episode of a great television show. Later um, later today, we'll be talking about a other show on Monday nights. One that you don't watch on Mondays, as you told your Twitter Oh, following. Briar Patch, of course. Patch. Did I say that? <laughs> my, my guy with a... You know, because you're not really like a live tweeter. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you'll, don't you'll get jump mad at me in. about that. I support your television show because I was like, Better Call Saul is good on Monday night. No, you were just like in the middle, like Briar Patch premieres. I'm like, okay, let's get let's get them live viewers. Let's get let's get the numbers rolling in. Let's keep building. Let's keep building, which we did, by the way. But let's keep building in the ratings. And then I'm like, I just got my team behind me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm like the you're like the DNC lifting me over the finish line. <laughs> I'm Tom Perez of Briar Patch, <laughs> and then. Snake emoji. I was like, Saul's great. At like 8.06 on the West, you just tweeted, Saul. <laughs> Not at 7.55. I got confused, okay? I was mm-hmm. watching a screener of Better Call Saul. Oh. I was not watching Better Call Saul against you. Uh, must be nice. And I DVR, I DVR Briar Patch, as do multiple members of my family. Great. Extended family. Okay. You're an only child, but okay. I, I but my it. mother. Oh, that's nice. And my wife's mother. That is my All, core, core demo. Yeah. And they don't watch wrestling. They come for Briar Patch. Yeah. They're not spillover audience. That's great. Okay. The wrestling's a bonus for them. I'm sorry that I, I split the <laughs> split the vote, my guy. Um, <laughs> if you had dropped out of Saul earlier, I would have won on Super Monday. But don't worry. I, I won't I won't I won't hold a grudge. The revolution is coming. Talk to me a little bit about because we talked about the first episode of Saul, I think. Yeah, and then we, together, skip, we and did then not we talk about the second. get a chance to talk about the second one, and the third one aired on Monday. I, I am dialed in on this show. I think that even in episode like three, in which if I just described the plot to uh, any bystander, would be like, oh, it doesn't sound like a whole lot happened. There sound like there was a couple of clandestine meetings, a couple of, <laughs> couple of conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, a woman tried to buy a, a home on, in the desert and it didn't work. She was disappointed. She drank some beers. Well, she didn't. She didn't try to buy home. She tried to convince yes, a gentleman I'm, to sell I'm speaking a in generalities. I feel like you were doing a, you were a little unclear in your recap. <laughs> if you're like, friend, as it's a show about desert real estate. <laughs> well, it was for a couple of years there. It was. Uh, 
you wouldn't know that it is, I think, one of the, one of the true miracles of TV. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about this because I haven't gotten your thoughts on the last two episodes yet. Well, I agree. I think one of the things that's great about going week to week, having been watching, you know, we, we've said this multiple times, we, we sort of got away from it week to week. We caught up binging it mm-hmm. and it's very well suited to that. One of the fun things about watching the season week to week with a little bit more confidence and understanding of what's going on and the way they tell their story is that you still don't, you may, you know, we may know certain pieces and where they're going. The one thing you don't know is when the steps that you are step-by-step walking down are going to fall away and you're just going to be in free fall. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, and it's so rich, only about this show would you say this, all of a sudden, in the third episode of the fifth season, oh, he's a drug lawyer now. Mm -hmm. Oh, now there's one show. There were two shows. Now there's one show. Yeah. Again, the most outrageous luxury of all time to slow walk two different narratives until they could finally join. But right. if you have the and opportunity, also take it. the ability to bring back multiple characters yeah. from a long running television show that is very beloved, who are thrilled to be back yes. clearly, and that was sort of infectious and great energy. But that's exciting. That was really exciting, and I and I think that the they're so ready to be where they are. I think that one of the hallmarks of interviews with Vince Vince Gilligan and and the other writers of Breaking Bad was that despite the cool methodical exterior that we like to rhapsodize over, they were flying by the seat of their pants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, each, um, thinking about those old cartoons, like people falling and then hitting each oh, yeah. uh, balcony on the way down, yeah. like wherever Walter White was at each step may have felt premeditated, but it very often wasn't. Right. They do not. Or they would write a point where they were like, we don't know how we're going to get here. And that'll be the challenge yes. slash fun. Yes. Um, and we have, a, there's a clock on it, so mm-hmm. we better figure it out. I'm not saying that they were necessarily more premeditated on this show, although they've certainly learned their lessons about how they like to tell stories. But there's just such a quiet confidence to it now that he is where he is mm-hmm. with all the work that went into it to get him here and all the other, you know, the the, the road that still stretches out in front of him. It's, it's pretty exciting. This is one of my favorite Odenkirk episodes. And yeah. uh, partially because I think you can see the transformation actually taking place rather than just being spoken, rather than him saying the catchphrase, rather than him changing his suit. Like, you could see the way he was talking himself into and out of trouble with Lalo Mm -hmm. and be like, this is where this guy's life is going to be until it falls completely apart. Um, I think that Tony Dalton, Bob Odenkirk, Ray Seahorn, Michael Mando, like, to to say nothing of John Carlos Esposito and Jonathan Banks, but, like, this group of actors Mm -hmm. that they have going right now are so captivating. And, it, you know, I, I wish I had, like, a more detailed way of discussing it. It's not even the... I think the thing that I love so much is the way in which their performances fill out frames, but they don't overpower them. So the thing that I loved about this episode was a couple of times, there's two scenes where Saul goes to talk to Lala. Once um, in the beginning when he finds out his his gig is to go to Crazy 8 in jail and give him this, this list. This is when Lala's rolled up his sleeves and he's working on the I'm Working car. on his car. And then the second scene when Lala is doing... Doing, doing donuts doing in the some desert. some laps out at the dirt track. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both of those scenes, um, Nacho is kind of, he's there. And what I love about what these guys, how these guys make TV and how everybody is, makes TV on the show is they don't uh, cast him aside as a sort of like, well, you're a non-essential. You were essentially the chauffeur that brought Saul here. Mm-hmm. He is still a, an active listener and you're supposed to be noticing how he's standing, the mm-hmm. way he's looking, the way he's reacting to what Lalo is saying and what Saul is saying. There's that amazing line, you know, when at the end of, of when Saul is like, 
you know, talking to him and he's just like, you're in it now, you know? Yeah. But the thing that really hit for me is when Nacho goes and talks to Gus at the most terrifying electrical plant <laughs> I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Albuquerque. <laughs> you can see the difference in the way that he's listening in that scene. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, he's actually scared of Gus. You know what I mean? He knows that the that Gus, he works for Lalo or whatever, but Gus is what he has to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. And you only get that if you add the first two together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything is everything is additive. Everything builds to something else. What finally occurred to me last night, and I, well, I watched it last night, um, but with this week's episode, uh, this may have been, exp- it may, very likely has been expressed elsewhere and probably more eloquently, but I'm going to try to articulate it. But I was trying to think about what felt so different about the moral descent of characters on the show. Because mm-hmm. this episode is very much about that. Yeah. Um, Kim's own equilibrium and the choices she makes and has great made. Barry Corbin's line, you know, you will Boy, say anything he, to get what you want. Boy, he was great. Yeah. I mean, what a guest turn. Um, Nacho's conversation with his father, which was also beautifully mm-hmm. considered, written, staged, shot, etc. Um, and the difference between this and Breaking Bad and why we still feel such intense connection and agony to these characters, even those whose fate is either already known or um, very clearly easy to predict. And I think the main difference is, and this is maybe also why this is a better show for right now than Breaking Bad was, Mm. one of the things about Breaking Bad, it's right there in the title, was the conceit of, let's take a quote-unquote normal person, and not saying this pejoratively, a normal person for a TV writer's room in 2006 when they were crafting the show, is a middle-aged, marginally successful white man who feels, um, you know, resentment over not being appreciated. And this is right before the Great Recession, and and it was tapping into a lot of the feelings in the atmosphere then. But really what it was about was what if you took a quote-unquote normal person and just moved the frame, and how far would he tumble? Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a sense that there was a vicarious, like, quote-unquote, normal people watching this. Oh, I could do this. Like, that's the the road not taken. Right. Right? And the really striking contrast in a very positive way, I think, with Better Call Saul is that all of these people in different ways are already hopeless. Yeah, they're desperate. Yeah. They come from marginalized backgrounds or they come from poor backgrounds or they are already trapped in a cycle. And whether it's the cycle of the fridge guy who's taking the plea deal with a baby on the way, you know, to try to get the best version of what is a very bleak and limited future, or it's Kim who desperately wants normalcy, the kind of normalcy that Walter White rejects and was on a path to do it, but it's corroding her soul. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy, the same thing with his family issues and his own relationship to money. Um, and then certainly really powerfully, I think, uh, I was appreciating this episode, uh, Nacho, um, and his relationship with his father and what he wants the ways that he's gone about trying to impress his father slash save his father slash hide from his father. And when you think about these people as already being trapped, the pathos increases so much. Yeah. You know, and it's even though big, we don't know they're dead or that this is going to, you know, we don't know about the end, the end points. It's more just about like, it's inescapable. It's a very different kind of pathos and it's a very different kind of empathy, I think, for characters and I would say an even more insightful investigation of the American project mm-hmm. than the first show was in some ways. Certainly more in line with the way that those of us who maybe are more Walter White than we are Ignacio 
are investigating ourselves and our circumstance and what our floors and ceilings are. Yeah, and especially if you kind of look at, if you kind of strip away um, the, the Jimmy Chuck stuff from the earlier seasons and you just focus on Kim for the sake of this conversation, mm-hmm. she herself has an amazing Breaking Bad arc. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it's like clearly, clearly just wants to do good in the world. Has found that the working on Mesa Verde and working on these uh, corporate accounts where there's essentially, you know, really like the tip of the spear for American grift mm-hmm. in some ways has just le- like completely emptied her out. And she wants to, her idea of a great day is to have a full slate of pro bono cases and case by case, judgment by judgment, phone call by phone call, her resolve and her spirit and her will to kind of fight on is stripped away until she thinks that she's coming back for the the halftime speech to this yeah. guy to tell him, I'm not like everybody else. I'm here to help you. I'm good. Yeah. And good. I know here's my biographical note to sort of solidify my case here is that like I know what it's like to be moved out of, you know, at the middle of the night and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, fuck you. Fuck you for thinking that that's what's going to close this deal. And what is the goal? What is the game? Mm -hmm. Who's playing the game and who's getting played? One of the things that they've always done so brilliantly in the way they've shot these two shows, thinking of them as a piece, is taking advantage of the fact that Albuquerque is a desert and they built a town on it. And so there's just these boxes on top of a place that maybe you shouldn't be there, Mm -hmm. but you are. And... You think about her life, and now she and they, this episode went to great pains to show that she's driving in Audi now. She has a fancier car, mm-hmm. so she's moving up, but she still lives in a metal box that's in a development with other metal boxes. And is the goal to move into a slightly bigger box? And then what? Mm-hmm. And then what? And then what? You know, I, I I feel like one of my favorite things about Breaking Bad was the sm- sometimes the smallest decisions, which was to give Walt that. Pontiac Aztec with his oh, car, yeah. which yeah, is yeah. maybe uh, charitably the ugliest American car in <laughs> no free ads. 40 years. Yeah. Um, is Pontiac still with us? And yet, I, I don't know. Let's check. Is Pontiac, is Ned Beatty still with us? I was wondering that today. He is, is he right? a Pontiac salesman? No, I was just trying to think of people that, you know, people in companies that I just don't know. Okay. I was thinking about Ned Beatty today. That's kind of kind of Thursday I'm having. <laughs> um but but what is what is the goal? And that was the same sort of like, I'm going to step outside your normal rules that Walt did. Mm-hmm. And there are these little steps along the way, whether it's uh, realizing the banality of the car you're driving or whether it's the moment in episode three when Saul is like pulls a number out of his ass of how much this is going to cost. And there's that pause and was brilliant performance by Odenkirk because as he's saying the number, you see the calculation on his face where he's starting to, he's gotten two numbers out and he realizes he could have gone bigger. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. Yeah. You know, and so now you're in it, you're in it now. How good is Dalton, man? You're in a different world. I mean, listen, you're talking to someone who, I don't know if you know this, but I have a show on Monday nights too. And there are a lot of people with mustaches on my show. Yeah. Tony Dalton might be my favorite mustache on TV right now. And we, we're not even talking about the wrestlers. We're just talking scripted. I, no, they, do they have mustaches on wrestling? They used to. Isn't it dangerous? You could pull Iron the... Sheik used to have a mustache. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, is he clean shaven now? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Pontiac pitch man. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just, I love his performance. I love everything about him. I love seeing him on screen. It just, it's a delight. Yeah. I, a... I, I can't wait to see where this, this season is going. Um, I think somewhere good. 
Yeah, I think everybody's going to work out for everybody. It I seems feel like, like people are on good trajectories. And oh, by the way, I have one more thing I want to say. The best, one of the best yeah. choices in this episode was how um, the wide master shots of like that house in the desert. Yeah, and it looks like oh, look at this pile of wood and the like, like blocking development and blocking yeah. forward progress and manifest destiny. And then when you get inside the fence, he's created like a little paradise for himself. It's mm-hmm. modest, but it's still like pretty, you know, and it's like, it's his. Mm-hmm. And that was what it was supposed to, that was the deal is like you get this lease and you can have yeah. it for a hundred years, you know, and, and it's the very same, homesteadery, you know, like. But it's the same sentiment that's in Nacho's father's speech. Yes. I will my, not, that's my garage. I will not be pushed off of this. Yeah. And that's, that is literally the hill I may die on in both these men's cases. Yeah. Uh, I mean, both cases they have. The father and Kim both have people in their lives that are like, let me show you how I see this world Mm -hmm. and how it's going to destroy you if you don't let me help you. Let me also just say, on a personal note from Albuquerque, I've also worked with ants. Mm. Never directed them with the beauty and grace that they did. That was Was that CGI, you think? No, it was not. It was microcosm style. They've they've talked about this. um, And I was happy to see that similar ant wranglers, men and women of great ability and talent. And it, it... I, I okay. I, I mean this quite sincerely. We had ants in the Briar Patch pilot. Yes, and you have to have the ASPCA, or the Humane Society, not the ASPCA, you have to have uh, the Humane Society on set for even for this ants. This is not a bit. No, this is true. We had ants in the pilot, and you had to, the Humane Society has to be there even if it's ants. Do the ants have like names and like agents and stuff? Um, we use local talent. Um, Union, but. but I'd like to think so because they kept they very guilt? demanding hours. Yeah, but what I but I, but I'll say is that they were like ants and they were doing their business. <laughs> And then when in between takes, the ant wrangler had like a dust buster and was like, gen- like dust busting the ants. And I was like, that's humane? And they're like, oh, it is actually. And I was like, okay. Do they like it? Are right. they trying to be like, oh, no, they love it. They love when their and, universe gets sucked into a but, black hole but, and they're inside of a black and decker. But then I was reading their sister. I think Vulture did a piece or, or, or another website about the ants on this episode, mm-hmm. the ice cream cone, thinking they were CGI. And they were like, no, no, it's very serious. There's an ant wrangler. And they use this light dust busting type tool. So it was legit. It actually was a huge relief. Because I thought they were like, no, this is humane. <laughs> and just like, just, just mass murdering yeah. ants. And yeah. be like, these are the same ants. They were just resting in their trailer who between takes. Who Really, honestly, who, who knows? But no, there is a system. Okay. They're beautiful creatures and performers. Do you think that the ants in Better Call Saul are the same ants in Briar Patch? I can only hope. There has been some overlap. Uh, we are recording, this is for this week, for Thursday, uh, a gentleman who was in the drug dealer poker game uh, mm-hmm. on Better Call Saul last week before Crazy 8 got popped uh, is in episode five of Briar Patch. So there, we do share some of the same rich talent pool, but in terms of the uh, insects, I cannot speak to that. The well, buck does not stop. Get back here. to me on that. I will. Well, okay. Should I just? Should we just? Kaya, should we pause while I Google? I mean, I'd love to give people closure. <laughs> I just want to know if those little guys are on IMDb. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the and how one. how long they've been going. Like it would be like this ant, and it's like he was in Reds. Well, one know? of them was in Hell or High Water because that was a big production in town. The movie didn't know he was on it. Yeah. Because he was just, <laughs> just snacking on Ben Foster's uh, uh, pretzels. Yeah. In between takes. Um. I will tell you a little bit about Debs. I know you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but before we go, officially I officially it premieres today, right? It premiered at midnight last night. I actually was still awake at midnight last night. Are you okay? And I uh, I looked at Hulu.com. Yeah, and there it was. So two episodes went up last night late. So we're not going to tell it. Talk about. I I think that this has been a complicated show for people to write about and talk about because even though I wouldn't even say there's like 
huge twists mm-hmm. in the first couple of episodes. I don't. Th- I think that everybody kind of has c- come to recognize that a show like this is best just to be experienced. Okay. As kind of, you want to be overwhelmed by it. You want to sublimate yourself to it. You want to hear it. You want to experience it. That being said, mm-hmm. I think it's a really cool mixture of like almost 2001-ish mysticism, mm-hmm. as, as was Annihilation and, and Ex Machina in some ways, mm-hmm. with like a compelling whodunit story, like a compelling Great. detective story. So uh, Alex Garland, the writer and director uh, behind Ex Machina, and he adapted um, Jeffrey Vandermeer's Annihilation, as we talked about quite extensively last year, two years ago when that came out. Yeah. He directed and wrote all these episodes, and it's just a, a fascinating show. And I'm really interested to see to what extent it breaks out, to see how... Like, you know, if it was just on FX, if it was on linear, I think, and it was week to week, I think it would definitely build up a cult following. But this will be a really big test of FX on Hulu. I, and I, I think it's the perfect time for this to come out. Because as we had said in recent weeks, if it had come out on regular FX linearly, it would be, I'm sure, as admired and loved by people as it already as it is going to be. Mm-hmm. But the narrative would be quite different. And instead, it can be a showcase for a new feature, a new service, and it can live in the cloud, yeah. basically. Yeah. And it can exist and it can continue to find viewers and and it's separated from the scrum in a way that from everything you've said and from whatever, I'm trying to limit my pre-reading about it, but it seems not fragile, but a little bit special. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's... it's so you're it's, all in. It's pretty unique. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's like watching Too Old to Die Young or, or, or Twin Peaks The Return. It's like, It'll be recognizable to fans of television. It's just got right. an extra layer of what the fuck is this. And it moves along at a clip, no disrespect to Westworld, but it it, it has, I think, some thematic similarities to Westworld and is mm-hmm. equally set in like a, how distant into the future is this? But I feel like moves at a pace that is much more satisfying to to like an average viewer. From what era does it draw its sad core piano Ballad interpretations of pop songs. That's is a great it, question. Is it, you know, more seventies like Seals and Croft? I will is say it, without spoiling anything that the band Low figures into this show. Oh, that's so on brand and for it's all of this. Fucking, I was like, good call, nice needle drop, bro. That is, that is peak CR. <laughs> yeah, really loving like off year Low records <laughs> yeah. is peak. Peak CR. You said it with love. That's when we important. when Low came in to Spin.com to do like to play on our couch acoustic or whatever in 2000, you were front and center for that. Fuck yeah, they you played a Beach Boys song. You had questions for Sparhawk. I did, I did. I love Low. Great band. Great I know. American I, band. I, I'm not. Why well, I can't? I you know what I've noticed. I've been doing recently. Mm. Saying American band or American actor as if yeah. like I'm really, really like the not not the greatest Italian band in these waning days of our great. Democratic experiment. I think it's worth noting that we contributed more than just jazz yeah. and baseball. The band Low, the actor Matt Damon. Yeah. Jay Ferguson's beard. Griselda. Listen, I think we deserve another 10 years just off that yeah. lineup alone. Yeah. Uh, we're going to transition to uh, Briar Patch Thursdays, right? I, I love it. I love it. I, I love talking about we this show this way because we all get to caps meet. Saul first. Yes. And now switch we, to my Twitter feed. We. <laughs> We get to talk to Zach Geller, who is the director of photography yes. for Briar Patch. He shot all but the pilot. Yes. Uh, really cool guy. Really interesting to talk to. I love talking to all these different people who worked in different parts of the show like this because you just get such an interesting perspective, not only on what it's like to work with Greenwald, 
which I, I already know that. <laughs> but I'm really fascinated by telling a story and creating a world over the course of 10 episodes and the challenges and also the, the you know, the, the creative moments that come along with that. Yeah, and I think we're going to be talking about episode four, which aired uh, after wrestling on Monday. And, you know, it was, it was designed to be sort of a unique episode. I, 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 I know I've been getting some guff because I referred to it on Monday, and I will again in our conversation with Zach refer to it as a bottle episode. As a former TV critic, I know it is not a bottle episode. It does not take place in one set only. Mm-hmm. What we were trying to do, and I use that phrase, and I jokingly was calling it a tequila bottle episode, is that we wanted to, it was bottled in Allegra's subjective POV of her experience of one thing, the funeral. That's what I meant. So mm-hmm. it technically not at all relevant to use that word, but Facebook I wanted to be clear. Had issues with I, your I, terminology. I did, I did yeah. see that. And usually it got in the way of them dragging you in a way that I like to look at. So I had to respond directly. <laughs> uh-huh. But anyway, just to say that this was always kind of an outlier episode for us, and it took a lot of special love and care in the writing and the crafting and in the directing. And what's been interesting and kind of affirming and exciting is for people who experienced it, it was part of the show. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like an outlier, you know, except maybe hopefully in an emotional way. But that's because of the work of people like Zach, who were, even as we changed the focus quite literally, he maintained the consistency along with uh, our guest for next week's uh, Prior Patch Thursday is Richard Bloom, our production designer. Mm-hmm. There were steady hands on the rudder to make it of a piece and the challenges that went along with that. So we talked to Zach about that. But you're the captain. To do. You were Ahab. Yeah, you know, I don't mention Avenue 5 a lot, but I did relate to Hugh Laurie's character early <laughs> where he was just like, I am actually a charming English fellow who is wearing this suit. Mm. Well, the other people are keeping us floating in space. Yes. So as a charming English fellow who looks, you know, great. Great in epaulettes and shoulder pads. Let's get into our interview with Zach. That's more my vibe. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday. We'll do finale of uh, Outsider. Oh, my God. Let's get into this cave. We may or may not have an appearance from Kaya McMullen, who may or may not have been in a cave recently. She is wearing a pith helmet right now. (laughs) Just keep it on all weekend. And uh, we'll also hit devs on Monday. So we'll talk to you guys soon. All right, now we are continuing uh, a long and wonderful tradition on the Watch Podcast where we talk about Briar Patch. Briar Patch Thursdays, a tradition like no other. We're talking about episode four. We have a very special guest today. Do you prefer director of photography or cinematographer, Zach? Could be whatever you're, whatever you're feeling. Briar Patch director of photography, Zach Galler. Thank you so much for joining us today, well, thanks man. Thanks for having me. Zach, you do incredible work on this show. Thank I, you. I'm I'm consistently sometimes I just mute it and I'm saying like, that's enough Andy for this one and I just I just watch the story get told in pictures. You are not alone. My wife <laughs> I think would agree with that. Much how the set was run. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that I'm sitting with the two people with the two hardest jobs on Briar Patch in a lot of ways because Andy obviously has a lot of wear a lot of hats. Into a lot I thought of you stuff. meant Zach as director of photography and Zach as cinematographer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But Zach, you have to know. What you're doing in any given moment on set, obviously, but you're also chiefly responsible for the overall look of a show that you then have to sort of constantly be thinking both in weeks or months in the future while you're on this very long shoot in Albuquerque, but also thinking about where the story is going. So you're thinking about things in a very technical term. This is why I love talking to to people who do what you do is because it's this incredible mixture of you have to have all this technical wherewithal, but you also have to have this real sensitivity to the direction of a story. So I guess let's start there. And can you tell me a little bit about what was exciting for you about the story of Briar Patch that you thought you could bring your sensibility to? Well, I think a lot a lot of the a lot of the tone and look gets set in the pilot. Mm-hmm. And 
there was definitely a world that was created by Todd and Anna Lilly. Um, this is Todd Campbell. Todd Campbell. Sam Esmail on mm-hmm. many other projects. I've heard, I've heard of Sam Esmail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a popular guest on the Rewatchables podcast. <laughs> he's a big picture. <laughs> oh, right. So yeah, you're taking it all into consideration. You're, you're, you're thinking about what kind of that pilot episode set up. And then I wonder if, if for, for people who don't know, because I think it's a pretty unique challenge to shoot nine episodes of television. Yeah, well, this is what I wanted to, where, where you're going with this is where, where I wanted to, to start really with Zach, which is, Chris is being very nice to say that my job was as hard as yours. I don't think that's true. I mean, one of the joys of the show is watching people who can do things I could never do. But you, your job was that twofold because I don't know the things you know. And I think we should definitely discuss at some point while you're here when you taught me about electricity, <laughs> which was fascinating. <laughs> It was very, very rudimentary. You took a kite and a key, and we, <laughs> we went out, out in a storm. We were in the desert. Um, like, where this Ben Franklin outfit? But, but, but also <laughs> essential to learning about electricity. That was once we got to know each other better. But also, uh, just just in terms of, it's just hard. It was just crushing. So let's take it all the way back, because I do think, you know, there are people who are listening who say cinematography is good, or they talk about camera work, but they truly don't understand what the job is. So could you explain what your job is in general. And then we could talk specifically how hard that job and specific that job is to nine episodes of episodic television sure. over the course of four months in the desert. Uh, one thing that's great about it is that it's, there are a lot of different ways that you can interact with being a director of photography right. or cinematographer. We can pick, let's pick director of photography for this DP. conversation. DP. Yeah. I th- they're interchangeable. Um, yeah, the director of photography gets the script usually and then talks with the director about how you're going to implement how does the, how do the words that are in the script actually go through that bottleneck of the camera what's that going to be like what's it going to feel like in whatever set you're in what uh, how do you want the camera to move how do you want the the feel of of the show to be when you're said and done but there are also directors who have experience as DPs themselves yeah. or have a lot of camera technical experience and say, I want to use this lens and I want to do X, Y, and Z thing. And the other directors who will say, you know, I want it to feel a certain way. And, kind of, and you have to intuit both It's kind both of the, the fun of it is that every time it's different because you're, you're interpreting a script, you're interpreting the director's wishes, and some directors are very technical and will say, like, we're going to shoot this particular lens. I want a dolly move to be about this long. And other directors, exactly like you said, are just like, I want this to feel organic yeah. or, you know, it's some, it's, it's about sort of taking a lot of different interpretations and making the technical reality of that happen. Yeah. And then, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, I'm curious about, you know, you guys worked with multiple directors on mm-hmm. this season and then you've got Andy on the set who's acting as a showrunner. What's the specific relationship between director showrunner and director of photography on the set? You know, it's different with every show just yeah. to, as it would be with a director. And, like, on episodic TV, it, I feel like all the lines are kind of blurring. As I started an indie film, and that's sort of a, a medium where, although there are financiers and producers, the director, there's, like, one yeah. one voice. Yeah. And they're in charge. On TV, because directors cycle out, and this ebbs and flows with every show, just like anything else, the director has more or less say sort of in the look. And I think the showrunner-DP relationship may be sets that tone early and is is one of the more consistent things. Yeah, because so, well, we're the ones who are there for yeah. every episode. Yeah, and yeah. you guys are, I mean, when I was visiting set, one of you was there for 
almost everything that happened on set. It was Zach. Yeah. It was, it was always Zach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, we don't do many shots if Zach's not there. <laughs> well, you have a second unit. You can go. That's true. We could do a splinter unit. Yeah, that's sometimes. true. Whole nother conversation. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the, so the job, going back to the question, the job is really sort of interpreting whoever's in charge and what the material is, fitting that aesthetically through the filter of the budget, the time, the the desired outcome, and just sort of implementing that. And in the way that, you know, for a show with a writer's room um, and with scripts credited to different writers, ultimately it does has to have to feel like one voice, mm-hmm. even though each writer brought something very unique and very specific to each episode that he or she worked on. Within a show with multiple directors, they still have to kind of feel like the same show. Mm-hmm. And and that has to filter through Zach's sensibility and through his lighting choices and through the way the camera moves, the, the decisions we make about how cameras move on our show. All of that has to be made at the top. And these are conversations that we had um, and that Zach had with our producing directors, uh, Stephen Pyatt and Eric Crary as well. Sure. And I'll say, I mean, so much of it, you know, on a, on a TV show, you're you're sort of setting up a system through which everything has to run yeah. because just because of the volume, I guess. It runs very different from how a movie does. But the production design is also mm-hmm. such a huge part of keeping things consistent. Like when uh, the DP and the production designer will work hand in hand about how the sets are going to feel, the size of the sets, the technical requirements of the sets. I'd um, imagine even like the colors of the color, furniture. It's, a, it's, you know, a converse, right? it's yeah. always a conversation that we're having and it's um, developing that is kind of it works the best when you can create a world and you've had enough time to think about the world so that the decisions are they're they're almost made for you in a sure. way it's it's like here's this place we're existing in how do we get there consistently and then it just sort of becomes a second nature by the time you're you're going into it. And one of the beauties of uh, our production, beautiful things about our production, was that Zach and Richard Bloom often did work hand in hand, mm. holding hands. Because <laughs> nice. they get along so wonderfully. Yeah. And we're going to talk to Richard later in the season to talk about his half of it. But It's a secret of great cinematography is production design. I just think it's so important. And we got so lucky to yeah. have Richard Bloom. Th- th- there's, a, there's a moment that was probably overlooked. And, and we can find specific moments in episode four as well. But in episode two, there's a small moment when Allegra um, goes into the police station and is sitting in the um, coroner's office, basically, the pathologist. And we built that set on the fly out of a room behind the police station set. We never used it again. It's a small moment. It's just brown file cabinets. And I think it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I love that moment. And that that's whenever I think about how the two work together and elevate it. It could have just been a throwaway moment. It's a very brief scene, and it's really more about the content. You know, it's it could you could get by with never seeing that set again. We never see the actor who plays a pathologist again. But because Zach and Richard were in sync to the degree that they were, it feels rich. It feels evocative. It feels like a place that has existed and may continue to exist, and it's not thrown away. There are no wasted moments. Well, and I, and I think that also sort of speaks back a little bit to back to your question about what does a director of photography do? Because which, which I'm also asking because I it's don't a question know. that I ask myself all the time. <laughs> it's a definitely an evolving thing. But you know, thinking about that scene, it's two people sitting at a desk mm-hmm. in a brightly in, in a. It's supposed to feel hot and sunny in San Bonifacio. So it's, how do you? You know, I think I think something that a lot of people or viewers maybe don't think about sometimes is is like, there's a million ways you could show that scene. You know, it could be just a shot of someone's eyes and do all an audio, or it could be just a wide shot, or it can be, I think we do some close-ups that are really frontal, like on the eye line, sort mm-hmm. of Coen Brothers feeling mm-hmm. close-ups. And 
that's where sort of the art comes in on the other side of the craft, making those aesthetic decisions and sort of your instinct for how that goes. And that's where kind of the relationship between director and director of photography gets blurred sometimes. Sometimes a director will have no, not not no opinion about it, but will be, they want, they'll say, we want this to feel like this. And then a director of photography will interpret mm-hmm. that to mean one thing and you end up with that specific shot. Or the director might be like, I want this exact shot, that lens. Yeah. Right there. So right. it's 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 nebulous. So I this is a two-part question, but the first part's very easy, which is I think it would be helpful for listeners just to hear a little bit about your background. Because you mentioned you worked in indie films. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got Zach also has an indie rock in New York City backstory. Oh, which also in that's Brooklyn. Not this, I, think, uh, I wasn't gonna talk about your personal yeah. band history. I just mean that you worked with bands. Yeah. If you'd like to talk about your history <laughs> in bands. He's shaking his head. Okay, no, we'll I, revisit I, in the Splinter Unit I, podcast. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be dropping <laughs> into Tom Clancy's Splinter Unit. <laughs> this, <week on, laughs> this week on Splinter Unit. Um, uh, yeah, I started in the film business. I dropped out of film school to play in a band and uh, ended up getting into the film business uh, starting as a truck driver, hmm. uh, working in a lighting rental house and driving lights to sets in New York City and working okay. on small non-union commercials and little... Uh, industrials and sort of just small things and then i started shooting i i had i'd always taken pictures my entire life and was always kind of knew that there was something there for me and then i sort of lied my way onto a couple of columbia grad student films Mm -hmm. uh short films and they're like can we see your reel and i was like yeah it's just not edited yet and you know you kind of gotta get your foot in the door somehow so went did a couple of those and that sort of progressed i shot one million little music videos for mm-hmm. free and shorts for free. And just as I was gaffing and doing lighting for, to make money on the weekends would go shoot stuff with friends and stuff like that. And I got, just got really lucky and really New York has such interesting people working in it. Yeah. Sort of a director that I really, I shot a bunch of music videos with and some shorts. Uh, she was She's Norwegian and got funding from Norwegian government to do a feature film. And so that first feature film we did together uh, got into Sundance. What was it called? The Sleepwalker. Okay. Um, It was in competition in 2014, I think. But yeah, and like we just got so lucky. Yeah. And that sort of led to more indie movies. And I shot probably seven or eight indie movies. And then I got a meeting for a TV show with a showrunner director named Greg Yatanis mm-hmm. who did Banshee and yeah. Quarry right and I did a show called Manhunt Unabomber with yeah. him and he's I feel like he sort of he really gave me a break and kind of plucked me out of obscurity and when you although your tan lines videos I'm a fan of <laughs> yeah I would have I would have referenced those first <laughs> so the reason I, I wanted to get a background on the indie stuff and get a sense of where you came from is because one of the things that Andy brought up whenever I would talk with him about the show over the course of of being down there is this idea that you guys are essentially making a very long indie film because you are shooting it as if it's a movie. It's not, here's an exterior of the place where Roger Sterling is going into his office and then here is his set where we always shoot and it's a medium and it's- Well, in the sense that we were on location so much. Yeah, but also even I think that like, you can see it in episode four, which is a very talky, very cerebral, emotional episode. In a very hot graveyard. Yes, (laughs) and it's very sun bleached and everything else. But like each- scene has this its own distinctive cinematic quality to it. And I, I don't think that you could watch Briar Patch and be like, 
Yep, just like any old show on uh, on like you know. Say it, coward. Trash know, like, the show. No, I mean like any old like you can't watch that show and be like, yeah, this looks like TV from two thousand and four. Right. It's part of that kind of increasing blending of like cinematic sensibility with a television sort of scope. And I wonder whether or not your indie your training and your your come up through that that world kind of prepared you for having to be like a high volume but still very like artistically minded person. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing that feels similar is schedule. Uh, On an indie movie, typically, a smaller indie movie that's probably budgeted between like 200 grand and a million and Mm -hmm. a half bucks, you probably have 18 days. Um, Your crew size that you have working for you, that's like grips and electrics and camera assistance. You're you're likely to have one camera. You'll probably have about five or six lighting guys Mm -hmm. helping you, like on a day-to-day basis. So, you have to plan ahead of time what your setups are going to be, what your lighting setups are going to be, what the sort of uh, – this is the thing that takes the most time is lights and moving lights around yeah. and things like that. So you you, have, you really have to plan – and I think indie film is a great place to learn this. You have to plan a sort of strategy, like a almost like a zone defense about mm-hmm. what your – where the big pieces are going to go so you're not spending hours every time you turn the camera around moving that stuff again. Right. And that, I think, is a great training ground for TV because yeah. the pieces might get bigger, but it's essentially the same idea, which is you just have to go as fast as you can all the time. And you and you have a lot more resources in TV, so you're able to, I think, accomplish a lot more aesthetically and even script page count-wise, but it's, it's pretty similar. Yeah, I've been kind of fascinated over the last couple of years with just like people moving from indie film rather than graduating to... and and. Personally, I'm so I'm happy this is happening. But rather than graduating to blockbusters or superhero movies, it's like Amy Simons and Jeremy Saulnier and, and people like that making more TV. You know, to sometimes not masterpiece shows, but like you can see that their their backgrounds in like run and gun and knowing how to like get stuff done efficiently works well in television. I do think that just to speak to that a little bit, I I, I agree with you, and I I love that people who are real artists are taking TV seriously yeah. and it's becoming a much more interesting medium. It does seem like the market, I guess I would say, or just film in general, like that sort of 20 to $50 million film that would have been like something in the 90s or 2000s all transitioned over to TV. Absolutely, They're spending the same amount of money and getting you know, five times more yeah. content. But I would also say that something that we talk about a lot and, and certainly was at the forefront of my mind is this sort of strange moment we're at with television where expectations are aesthetically higher than they've ever been. Absolutely. But the industry and the business and the budgets are often still from the previous era. And the sort of inflection point where those two not getting along realities meet is in Zach's job often, Yeah, I found. You know, because Zach, there's a whole element that we're not even talking about, which is the budgeting and the, you know, and how you're going to use the tools that you have. While, you know, we used to have that analogy about show running before... I had done it about, you know, building the track while also operating the train Mm -hmm. on it. And that's what Zach was doing on the fly day after day after day, episode after episode, as, you know, budgetary expectations changed or shot lists changed or ambition changed with the arrival of a new director. Those two things crashing on you at all times is something that I really respect and do not envy. It was. It's fun to figure out. It's just, you know, it's always a different challenge. You want to talk a little bit about episode four in regards to some of that stuff? Because bread knife weather is I do. episode four. Before we do, I just also want to say for people who just bring it all the way back that um, both of you were talking about it at the beginning. 
when we opened the show up to series and Todd went back to work on Mr. Robot and we needed to bring in a new director of photography, um, you know, it was an opportunity to talk about what we wanted to do differently. And one of the things that we were talking about, this is me and Andy Campagna from S-Mail Corp mm-hmm. and everyone else involved in the decision making was we wanted to take the opportunity to open up the palette because the color palette and also just the way the show looked and felt because what Lily gave us was so brilliant and so cerebral and kind of claustrophobic on Rosario and on her experience. And now we had to do nine more. And over nine more episodes, we couldn't be as tight in on her. We had to just break POV and also expand the town. And so all this was part of the conversation with the people we were interviewing. And obviously when we Skyped, Zach was in New York with a baby crying in the other room, which made me immediately want to hire him. (laughs) But the second thing was, because I can relate. Honestly. But uh, the other thing about it was, Zach, you spoke really beautifully about, you know, what you thought we could do and what we could accomplish with the world and the tone, but also, and I think people listening to this can get a hint of this, Zach has a very calming voice and a yeah. very calm demeanor. <laughs> and you were wearing like a uh, like a lumberjacky shirt. And I was like, well, I think we have to hire him because even if he's not good at being a DP, which he is, I'm seeing the evidence, but even if he wasn't, he'll be soothing. Maybe yeah. he would have a catch with me yeah. after, sh- after shoot every day or teaching me how to use woodworking tools. Are there really jacked Come here, son. which I think which by the way I kept making that joke to him and he's like sorry I'm busy redoing my porch on the home that I own so are there really amped up DPs out there oh yeah oh yeah there's all different kinds guys who are really wired I can see that I guess it would be a lot yeah. I mean it, it, it would be intense there's a right fit for every every set you know yeah. say you have uh, I don't know someone who really wants to take a back seat creatively Right, it might be really good for you to hire someone that's super outspoken and is going to just. Uh, well, you're not. You're not inspoken. What's the well, opposite of outspoken? <laughs> soft-spoken, <laughs> introverted, soft-spoken. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I feel like there. And again, it's one of the things I love about this is it. There are just there are no kind of rules for how things work. It, There's it, no set. True, but you're like true. But your experience having done this before, mm-hmm. you know, you're very clear to me about you know helping me check myself with my emotional highs and lows, like feeling like two weeks into it being like, we got this. And you were like, oh, oh, oh sweet boy. Oh, no, no, no. This is easy, man. Uh, and warning me what came true, which was that by week, well, I don't know, month four. So it was like day day 37. That's when it starts to kick in. Yeah. By the time we were at episode nine, Zach emerged blinking from his the tent that he lived in. Not the tent by the way, where the equipment was. He just brought a <laughs> he tent just brought his own, yeah. and said, what, what were you at this point? You were just mostly uh, dust, tin cans tin and cans dust. Tin cans and dust. Yep. <laughs> Hollowed out. So let's talk a little bit about right. four. So, uh, very interesting episode because I feel like this is, for me at least, watching was like the San Bonifacio episode. It was like the episode that felt the most in the town and where you got to see all these different, I don't know, organisms that made the big organism Mm -hmm. to some extent and also different people's relationships to the idea of their hometown. This was always designed to be a little bit, not strange, like a kind of a bottle episode. I think I was calling it a tequila bottle episode when I was pitching it. And basically we wanted to do the funeral. We wanted to do all the things that needed to be done for Felicity and then use it as an opportunity, not just to tell the type of story that you're describing where we could focus more on characters' interactions and their emotional lives as opposed to the larger machinations of the plot, but also one where we could sort of just step aside for a second and really focus in on stuff that we might not get to do once things really started rolling further down the line. So in keeping with it being a little bit non-traditional, it was written beautifully by Wei Ning Yu, who is our staff writer. It was her first staffing um, opportunity, but she's a beautiful and brilliant writer and was 
definitely the right choice for it from the beginning. She came she came to the episode. She came to our show with a really like laser focus on the emotional part of the characters. And so she was a, a no-brainer to do this episode. Um, and then also that we could take a swing and, and bring in a director from maybe outside of the of what of the list of TV directors that you're normally handed. And so we had Desiree Akhavan, who had done her own work on TV in The Bisexual and um, and had done a film called The Miseducation of Cameron Post. And, you know, we could do something a little bit different with it. And so, uh, so I, don't, I mean, I guess we should turn to you, Zach. Like, when you saw it, the script, and you knew it was a little bit different, and location-wise was going to be a little bit different, and actually— And a lot, right? A lot of— a It feels lo- like you guys are moving around a lot. Well, we were one. three days in that— boiling hot cemetery and two days in that church mm-hmm. um where and was the school nearby or was that a set uh, that was inside the church all that was in the church oh okay that was and everything was outside of it that was actually a great location yeah. find by the team and you guys treated it beautifully but um well, but, it, was a, it was a church so not treating it beautifully would be probably <laughs> a problem for our <laughs> eternal souls unless you were um, in a, unless you were in a norwegian black metal band. But, but, I, but i guess like so what it, so this is something i don't even know if we ever even had time to talk about cuz Zach was either working or running off to scout something or working again but this obviously felt different than the other episodes and it was going to be in places we were never going to return to so how do you prepare and approach something like that well i, I think it goes back to what we said a little bit before about sort of establishing a world and getting your idea of what the rules of this place are Mm -hmm. because that'll then inform all the decisions you have to make. So it's like, okay, we have all these different locations. We know what San Bonifacio is like and what serves the story as far as it's hot. It's really should be dusty and feel warm. And (laughs) Albuquerque really delivered for us on this one. It was perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was brutal. You didn't have to go day for night on that one. (laughs) It was brutal. My shoes shoes melted at the cemetery. They really, Zach Zach was wearing like full hurt locker, like military (laughs) garb. I learned early from the locals that like they all would go out in the desert with like full like jackets and like white completely camo covered. Jackets. And I was like, how can you do that? It's so hot. And then I quickly Because it's it's like the only thing that keeps the sun off. It's the you. best way. Yeah. yeah you'll just wild. get cooked and yeah. be done. But yeah, so sort of attacking the idea of how are we going to do this from the perspective of we know it's going to be hot and dusty and feel warm, like mm-hmm. the, the temperature of the, the image will be warm. Um, and then when you go into a location, you just you find a way to implement those things if you can and hope that you can. And so, for instance, in the church, we found Richard, I think, found this beautiful kind of mid-century modern church that had all this color. We added color. There's a, there's side windows. And we had uh, Richard and I decided that we would put this plastic that welders use mm-hmm. to sort of uh, partition off where they're welding so the sparks don't get everywhere. But it, they, it came in all these cool different colors. And it's not so much in the episode – uh, you can feel it in the room now a little mm-hmm. bit, but we we don't. I think the shots that we had that featured it weren't. In the, I think you can see it in the um, in the Cindy Singe scene, probably, which so, is one of my favorites. Right. We tried to bring color and we tried to bring hot sunlight in, yeah, any, anywhere that we could as far as the aesthetic feel of it. And then just by virtue of using a similar lens for a close up every time, or a similar lens for a wide every time, you get, it starts to feel of a of a piece. And so we would. I guess for this episode, you know, the sort of the the one X factor that I feel like isn't similar to the other stuff is the back of the limo. Mm-hmm. We have like these long a long scene in the back of a limo, which was an interesting <laughs> was lighting, process, <laughs> lighting and technical challenge. Um, that was but, the best limo we could get in Albuquerque. 
attached to a rig, yeah. driving in circles around where the church was for <laughs> a good bit of time. A long time. With no air conditioning. Yeah. I uh, can't have the air conditioning on because it messes up the sound. I, I don't have a specific example of this, but I do feel like the, the look of the episode changes the more beers deep Allegra gets in the episode. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously her coping episode that she eventually finally totally has her like breakdown over, uh, over her sister's death. And, you know, she is hungover already. She washes down some Excedrin or whatever with a beer in the morning, mm-hmm. which must have tasted disgusting. And then... Don't knock it until you try it. Pretty much from the second she gets out of her hotel till the end of the episode is crushing beers or taking shots or whatever. Yeah. And then you guys are kind of mirroring that decline <laughs> with the camera work with the I think the feel of the episode changes over the course of the of the 45 minutes or whatever it is. And then so that was Desiree really wanted it to feel subjective. Mm-hmm. And I think this episode we said from prep from the get-go was mm-hmm. a much more subjective episode just cuz it really stays in Allegra's perspective. Yeah, yeah. We, we really I know I just said what I was saying about how Lily's camera's focused on her and her experience. This was the one in Arn back 9 basically mm-hmm. that we wanted to be really zeroed in on her perspective, her subjectivity, her experience of it. And and so there was opportunity at every step along the way, obviously in terms of performance and Rosario was really dialed in. I mean, she always, she never wasn't, but I think she really was really focused on this episode because of the emotional breakdown yeah. and, and tracking where she was in order to get there. I think Zach and Desiree and Richard with all the choices he made uh, was focusing on it as well. And then during the long post time we had with this episode, for me, it was really crucial to design uh, well, also, we sh- I should mention our, our editor, Segan guy, who was also very much in line with what we needed to do in terms of how we were going to cut it and where were the camera was going to, and where our shots were going to stay and how long we were going to stay there. But then for me, it was also sound design. It was really, really important. And so there's a sequence at the end that I'm really proud of where we basically condense some stuff with sound where she throws the beer can and it's the rifle shot and then it's the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for me, that was really eye-opening and really creative and fun to realize what we can do in post to enhance things even further. Sure. Um, so that wasn't as written? No. I mean, she she is overwhelmed in that moment and steals the, the photo. That was as written. Um, right. But specifically, you know, there, was, there was connective tissue between the scenes that we just zipped away with, yeah. with sound design because we had already made the point, you know, that we needed to make. And there are things that are from the book um, – the waking up hungover Sergeant Mock, Sergeant Mock's whole first thing, Sergeant Mock played by a great guy, my friend Matt Oberg. That's all from the book about like sad things, funerals and keeping the beers in the cooler. Yeah. But then once we, once we knew that's the kind of world we're in, we definitely kept adding and kept adding. And kept, kept adding add, beers. Yeah. Kept adding beers and kept adding shots. Um, the one, the, my only regret, and I mentioned this because Zach is here about the episode. One thing about Zach, you guys need to know is Zach loves inserts. Zach loves an opportunity to, instead of moving on to another scene or another camera setup. Have somebody open a beer Just calm down, everybody. Let's move the camera in and just showcase something like, I don't know, like an item of food, for example, as we may see in next week's episode Mm. or or whatever. It's just, it's what DPs love most. Don't spoil that one. Pump the brakes. Yeah. (laughs) They love to pump the brakes. Just tell me where to point it, Fincher. Uh, I got it. (laughs) And so I I was very proud that in the the Sunday school room, we we did get the montage that I wanted of uh, horrific children's illustrations of Bible stories. Yeah. But what people won't get to see, and I, I am sad about this, is the Dixie cups that Jake pulls to pour the shots into. We had the art department design an image, a very loving cartoon image of Noah on the ark with three animals pointing and laughing at all the animals, other animals drowning. Mm. 
I didn't see that. <laughs> but because we didn't get the insert. But I, didn't, I don't even remember <laughs> seeing that on the day. It's, uh, it was like, that's the level of detail that, uh, that we spent time on, that wasted Andy time on. requires. Yeah, that Andy <laughs> yeah, requires. Zach, lo- Zach loves that stuff. Uh, this episode has my favorite Jake Spivey moment, even though, oh. even considering the dancing, I think mm. his post- eulogy critique or or just sort of like his praise of Gene's eulogy is so fucking funny when he's just like hey man that was great that, that may have been the funniest scene to shoot like that he he really went for it I mean Jay Ferguson doesn't hold back I yeah. feel um like, so did you rehearse that we actually had to take it back like there there is an amazing it, it I think it I think he said, like, okay, I see how you do it. And then he taps him on the shoulders and in the script. And as we shot it, he says, oh, I see how you work in it. Two tickets to the gun show over here. <laughs> yeah, I missed that in the cut. And it's so, so funny. But ultimately, these are the painful decisions yeah. you have to make because that felt like we were tipping and he was just being an asshole. Uh-huh. But Jay was very sad about that because his delivery of it was so amazing. And also, this is an insight into who Jay is. He, de- he delivered it in a way that was so funny. I went over in between takes and I was like, that's the funniest thing you've ever done. And he got so mad at me because once it was in his head, he could never do it again. Oh, yeah. And now it's lost. Yeah. It was good. Forever. Real, real sly. Real <laughs> scummy. Any, any particular so scummy. favorite moments from this episode for you, Zach? Or are they all like tied up and like, oh, that worked out well or better than I thought it would. That's cool. Like, yeah, it's not it's like. All, it's, it's hard for me to separate. Them. Yeah, because I wonder whether it's like with actors, sometimes they're like, oh, I'm spooked by seeing myself. I can't see it. Like for you, do you like do a lot of like self-reflection when you're watching something or are you just like I can't see this again like I'll do stuff um, where I I I look at it and I can appreciate lighting but it's so hard for me to not see like the edge of the set Mm. kind of it's always always like I always knew that there's stuff just off the edge of frame there and so you can't suspend disbelief yeah it's it's really tough it's definitely like in the moment when we're shooting it something I'm always so aware of Mm -hmm. and so I have these images and it's really hard for me to separate it out but I do uh, you know there are times where I go back and really like appreciate in sort of a bigger picture way where we ended with how the light feels right and that's that's satisfying to me okay I mean I think it's really important to note especially with Zach here to say that I, I just think that every shot is beautiful I mean the actors look incredible the light is beautiful and knowing how hard some of these circumstances were whether it was an unforgiving location or whether it was the weather that day or how much time we had you know, I, I love the opening of this episode, for example, with Floyd in the football stadium. And I know one of Zach, Zach had a lot of great, he loved a lot of the things that I brought to him. Like mm. whenever I walked over to the tent, like it was just, he was, he was excited. Yeah. It was going to be some good stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, this was this moment where we wanted it to be like boyhood or like Friday night lights and, you know, the green, green grass and, and the bright sunny day. All, and, all the best sports movies. Well, yeah. this, we wanted it yeah. to feel like nostalgia and we sure. wanted it to feel sort of fake. And of course, as soon as we get there, the cloud cover rolls in. So I was like, uh, big like Independence Day clouds coming. It's like Zach. um, uh, Yeah, this scene's supposed to be sunny. Can you? uh, What can we do about that? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, it'll be fine. That's why he's lying on a hash mark with like overhead. It'll 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 be fine, and and it is fine. And also, I think the thing people might not realize about your job is that it it so much of it isn't prep, obviously, and what you're going to need. So much of it is being fluid on the day in terms of what nature is giving you. But then it's not over because Zach's been really gracious enough to come back. He's here in L.A. now to do color correcting mm-hmm. on episodes 9 and 10. So you get more time. Can you just talk about that process a little bit too? Well, it's, it's a, and actually that scene that you just talked about is an interesting mm-hmm. segue to it because a lot of people would be like, what, what the heck is that even for? So that was a cloudy 
you know, there are there are maybe three or four shots in that sequence. There's mm-hmm. a wide from the side where we're seeing like the whole bleachers and everything behind him. And I think we did that first while it was still sunny. And then by the time we've gotten, and I remember actually on this on this day, we we had a crane there to mm-hmm. do a big top shot, but there was lightning close enough that we could not put up any large metal objects into the air. Um, There's that electricity you talked yeah. about. Well, again. you didn't have your Ben Franklin costume, so <laughs> well, I had the costume. I was advised. <laughs> um, anyway, so you know, it's like we're there for an hour and a half, and the first shot in the scene, which and the scene takes place within a minute, thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. It's, it's confusing, I think, for someone watching to see. If you don't see the change in camera, it mm-hmm. can be really jarring for the viewer and really take them out of. The scene. So in color correct, we'll try and do hopefully subtle things to match stuff that looks different when you have no control over it. Or you know, it's color correct's kind of like Photoshop. Sure. On, it's a pretty powerful tool. It's it's a lot like Photoshop for moving image. And a lot of times we'll shoot things on set that we don't know are gonna go right next to each other. Or mm-hmm. things will be repurposed or things will be just impossible to control a lot of like a lot of day exterior stuff you just at this budget level without getting construction cranes with 60 by 60 silks and things like that you just can't you can't hope to control you can't change the sun yeah you can't change the sun and um there there you know there are ways to to help yourself out and set the, the deck of cards in your favor but most times you're really at the mercy of whatever's happening so it's not a color correct where you can you you look at one side of a conversation and it's bright and sunny, and then the other side is cloudy and dark, and you can at least sort of uh, get them closer. Yeah, right. Well, but, I mean, this is this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I actually like I love talking about cinematography. It's just it's always so interesting. I wish that this was we were on YouTube because then we could do more of the the camera fingers gesture. Oh yeah, you know, that I like, like that. coming in and then a lot just of this. Too. <laughs> a yeah. lot of, oh, it's good stuff. Yeah. Filmmaker's corner, man. <laughs> uh, Zach, thanks so, oh. so much for coming by. Zach did beautiful work on the show. He did. It's Zach incredible. is an amazing DP. Zach also liked Albuquerque, yeah. liked living there despite moving five or six times yeah. during the course so of the summer. A, it, it's a <laughs> It's a big, big church, man. Like sometimes people may may not like Albuquerque, but there are those who love it. That's oh, I I love it. I like that uh-huh. so much. <laughs> you did not like it. I liked it when Zach's family was there, and you would invite people over, and it felt like it felt homier. Andy, yeah, Andy came to my kid's birthday party. Oh, that's sweet. We had a Jurassic Park party. I, this is this is why did he you got play hired. Sam Neil? <laughs> Wait, does Sam Neil? Who's the one who actually puts his hand deep into the? That's the, Laura Dern. I yeah. played Laura Dern. Yeah. I could, or I could see you doing Actually, gold Zach's wife was dressed as Laura Dern. She was. And you were dressed as Sam Neill. That's true. That's party. really fun. I came more as Chris Pratt because I'm generationally, you know, yeah, I'm no. a little hipper, a little your, younger. Your motorcycle. You kept saying, welcome yeah. to Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, thanks so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thank you for being here. <laughs>